0: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's moderator, American journalist and culture critic, Virginia Heffernan.
1: Um, I am so lucky to get to be here with an old friend of mine, um, Malcolm Gladwell, Um, and we're going to talk about um, what making this podcast sort of meant to him, and then he's going to um, do for you, render for you, the final episode of the first season of Revisionist History, Um, podcasts are clearly this extraordinary form and and Malcolm's a master of it after only one season Um, so we're gonna have a quick uh, question-and-answer and and then um, and then he's gonna do the last episode thanks here he is Malcolm Gladwell hi hi Virginia Um, I'm excited Um, okay so without knowing anything about this final episode, yeah. I want to ask you first about podcasting generally, because when I first met you, I was a fact checker and you were a writer and we did not think about our voices and our hair and our, how we sat on stage. You just thought about reporting and how to yeah. put a story together. And yeah. somehow you had to become a radio personality and use your voice. Why switching to audio? Did you, did you, did you gargle? Do you do freeing <laughs> the inner voice exercises like actors? Well,
2: there's, there's a moment of insecurity when you wonder whether you're one of those people who has an interesting voice or not. Because the minute you do something that's about audio, you instantly realize that you have been consciously or unconsciously judging everyone you've heard on the radio according to their voice, right? You have a yes. set of prejudices. Actually, I can't stand listening to that person Actually, I can. I really want to listen to that person. Mm -hmm. And you divided up the world into the unlistenables and the very listenables. And then your first thought is, oh, my God, am I part of the unlistenables?
1: Yes. And what would be... Okay, so what would be...
2: Who's an unlistenable? Yeah. Do I have to name names?
1: Well, let's say say what style. What style?
2: Well, you know, you... uh, There... I. My father once gave me this long riff about for some reason, he got really interested in voices, and there's a technical explanation for what makes an interesting voice. Oh, which has to do, and I can't even remember. he gave me this whole thing once but I think it has to do with you obviously want some degree of variety, yeah, and you want what I look what I like is idiosyncrasy. So I want someone who tells me something in their intonation and pacing and emotion that's not present in the words. Yes. And I don't really care what it is, I just want another layer. Yeah, um,
1: yes, yes, and you do that. We, I, I do was, that. On the way, I was gonna mention to you, I, I think when Walter Cronkite died, I listened to a lot of um, a lot of uh, his broadcasts, and he has this sort of pre-Peter Peter Jennings, your fellow Canadian, there was a way of uh, announcing the news in this very moralistic way. So I remember there was one broadcast where he says, the youth of today are very involved with drugs and alcohol. And you know, you knew what he thought. Oh, yeah. And then there's a very clinical Peter Jennings way where he would say like, they were having three ways and using tentacles porn, you know, where like, no judgment, right? <laughs> yeah, that's and, right. <laughs> and, 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 and so, but you do something different. I have an idea of what that is, but what do you think you do?
2: I don't know that I do anything at all, do I?
1: I think you add not clinical, not yeah. moral judgment, but something like irony. Just does, oh, does in the way agree?
2: that in the way that I sort of take certain uh, positions or not. I mean, I don't yes. know. I mean, I don't know if it's. Con- I don't think I'm doing it um, consciously. But there's a thing where you're. There's this huge difference between reading something that you wrote and reading something that someone else wrote. Mm. That, so it's very difficult for an, if you think of an actor in a movie and they're doing someone else's lines and they, they have to inhabit someone else's words with whatever character they're playing. And that's complicated. Um, but if, you, if it's your own words, as you're reading them, you're revisiting how you felt when you were writing them. And, you know, as you know, the process of writing is, is a series of in-jokes, right? You write something and you have a, your own private experience. Something like, I used to, this is a, when I was at the Washington Post years ago, we used to have contests to get phrases into the Washington I love Post, this story and which is a, did this. This is an extreme version of the, of the private joke, which is you always like there to be, there's always a separate kind of reality to what you're writing that is specific to you and your experience. So, you know, your father will use some... Your mother will use some phrase. And so you throw it into a story. And every time you see it, you kind of... Yeah. So when you're reading it, you're reliving all of that. And it's coming out in your... In the way you talk. In a way that you're not necessarily consciously aware of. Yes. Um,
1: yes. But, and then also
2: your... Mm. Your um, your emotions surface. So in the episode that airs tomorrow, it's a real weeper. Mm. And... um. There's a I, this guy. It's all about this guy, this 98-year-old Mennonite pastor, who is one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. And the whole time I was interviewing him, I was on the essentially on the verge of tears. And so I can't. When I do the whole episode, I am reliving that moment when I'm sitting in his living room, almost trying to hold it together. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of. I think that's what you what you pick up. That's the benefit of. Reading your own words.
1: I've noticed that other podcasters have experimented with describing in advance their own voice when they, you hear it in the interview. So, like, I'm a little choked up here. I'm a little overexcited here in this interview. In other words, like, I'm not a perfectly clinically detached person when I'm reporting. Yeah. You know? Um, I think on Serial she does that. You know, she's like, look at how close I think I am to getting the answer here. I'm, I'm obviously, like, hyped up you know, and yeah. then you hear her pod- Well, there is a whole, a that about- was
2: very, there was a whole kind of meta level to that, yes. that kind of, of, of podcasting. I, it, it's impossible not to do that a little, but um, you know, I was try. I didn't want to sound like I was part of the Ira Glass School. Not, I mean, I love the Ira Glass School. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. But I mean, I don't want to be another, I wanted to do something a little different.
1: It, um so the irony that I notice, and I since I haven't seen the scripts, you know, do you all remember in the Toyota um, episode um Malcolm talks about car guys. um so I think if uh if Walter Cronkite had done it, he might have been like the auto, cr- auto man or auto crowd, like he sort of would have been down with them. And I think I think uh, Peter Jennings, and I may be forcing this, would have said like an automobile expert, you know, okay. but, you, but car guy. And I heard quotation marks around car guy when you said yeah. it. And then you identify with car guys.
2: Well, no, I love the car guys. I want to be a car guy, but I don't actually believe in my heart of hearts I'm a car guy. In other words, I am <laughs> fronting as a car guy but I, it's all, it, I used to think I was more of one, but I had this little cousin who um, is 25, and he is both an airline pilot and a race car driver. He's the coolest guy who ever lived. Yeah. And ever since he became those two things, I feel so unworthy of calling myself a car guy. And he borrowed my Volkswagen Golf and took it up to some extraordinary speed on the, um, on the cross Bronx. And Reported back to me like how the car behaved at 110 or whatever, and I was just so humbled. And so I think <laughs> I I don't I, I don't have the self confidence now to really call myself a car guy in the wake of my cousin Jeremy's.
1: I think all it's worth listening. Just we should like make a GIF of it, of, of audio GIF of you just saying car guy, car guy, car guy. Because I think all that history yeah. plays into is, is how you, you put that English on the word. Yeah. Well, no, uh, this is, so
2: this is what we're talking about, this, this notion of another layer embedded in. And it's also the problem with when people... I think if I had to put into words what I classify... So we were talking about listenable versus unlistenable voices. Yeah. The unlistenable voices are the voices where the person is making no attempt to differentiate themselves from their kind of class. Right? They're not wow. doing... So they're not, they're not putting any of themselves into it. They are kind of falling back on their kind of group talk. Yes. And that's disappointing in a certain way because you want, you want more, right? You want some idiosyncrasy or...
1: Yeah, or, pain or yeah, self. Some, um, I, the thing that I would like to hear is I'd like to hear people in podcasts mispronounce foreign names. Because it's just this lie of podcasting and audiobooks. So I recorded my audiobook and they said, just read it exactly the way you'd read it, except we're going to train you for 15 minutes on Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. So that, like, but that's exactly not, I would not get that right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, like, I can't just become this perfect BBC person right when I get up to the name and express no anxiety about diving into the name. Like, you're yeah. just supposed to be this person that moves freely. You know, in between yeah. Ebonics and, Ar- you know, it just like that is, seems like a little bit of virtuosity well, that's, that's false.
2: I think po- the promise, the initial, someone said that podcasting right now is in the state that radio was in in the 20s, where there was this extraordinary profusion of radio um, stations. And, of course, what happens is you get consolidation, not just marketplace consolidation, but you also get cultural consolidation. So you, Mm. what arises is a series of, for example, voices that are appropriate for the radio. And I sort of feel that's the beginning of the end of radio. Like, uh, that what you, and I think that podcasting ought to fight that kind of cultural consolidation and we should continue to have, you know, let a million flowers bloom. Um, There was, I'm reminded of, there was a kind of, in Toronto in the 80s, there was a kind of new wave station um, called, if I'm not mistaken, CFNY. Is anyone from Toronto? Is it CFNY? Am I right? I'm too young for that. Oh, you're too young for that. <laughs> um, but CFNY late night CFNY was all the hosts were the most bizarre group of ill-suited radio voices you've ever, <laughs> you know, people with overwhelming speech defects, people with. And it was fantastic. It was like they yeah. were just there because they were into the latest, you know, members' album from England, and they would play it for you at great length. And that was magical. And now, when you, when I go home and I listen to, turn on CFNY, it's the same. It's that voice that went to, you know, journalism school, and it yes, kind of, it breaks my heart.
1: Communications degrees. Yeah. Sometimes that is amazing. You know, like in the convention coverage, just that on television, at least there's no setting for just like, what did we just hear? You know, there's <laughs> no like, no one can be just like have just like revulsion yeah. or like I'm storming off the set kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. They well that,
2: Virginia, that may still happen. There's just 96 oh. days left before the election. I feel. You're right, you're right. There's plenty of time for revulsion yet to come. Yeah. Um, wait, should we, I think we should start. We should move, yeah. So no, here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna do, I'm gonna read this sh- last episode And then I'm going to pause three-quarters of the way through, Virginia and I are going to talk a little bit more, then I'm going to finish, and then we're going to have audience Q&A, if you're all down with that. Um, Okay.
1: That's a great format.
2: It's a great format. (laughs) I'm going to start. So this is, um, I'm going to stand. This is the uh, last episode of the first season. So uh, how does this start? Do we, Yeah. It was sort of
3: the middle of the eighties and Mrs. Thatcher was the prime minister here and she was very popular with the sort of working classes and things and not with the sort of lefty middle
2: classes like me. Harry Enfield, one of England's best known comedians. He's talking about where he got the inspiration for his most famous character, a response to the imperious Margaret Thatcher with her bob and pearls who unleashed American style capitalism on the UK, and we the sort
3: of student hippies. We used to live on this council estate in Hackney, and we used to go to the local pub. And all the local sort of tradesmen and things always had huge wads of money, and they'd take it out and because they thought we were squatters. We weren't actually squatters, we, but we looked like squatters because we worked in television. So they get their big wads of money out and sort of you know flash it at the bar and everything.
2: Enfield hated Thatcher hated what she represented. To those
0: waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. (laughs) The ladies not for turning.
2: (laughs) Enfield and his partner Paul Whitehorse dreamt up a character to embody Thatcher's England.
3: So we'd start talking about this, and Paul Whitehouse was a plasterer at the time, my partner. And it sort of just became this sort of thing, really, where we'd just go loads of money about everything. You know, well, that's loads of money, loads of money, that, loads of money, that. And then uh, it became a sort of phenomenon.
2: His name was Loads of Money. He was a construction worker catapulted to sudden delirious wealth by the 80s building boom. He chews gum with his mouth open, wears acid wash jeans, white trainers, a yellow and green nylon jacket with white sleeves, keys on the belt, drives a white convertible in the countryside, all performed with a kind of cheerful, unstoppable tastelessness.
3: I mean, the politics, right? All you need to know about politics is that Mrs. Badger done a lot of good for the country, but you wouldn't want to shag it. I mean, at the time, everyone was going, Mrs. Thatcher, this, Mrs. Thatcher, that, and, you know, sort of very obviously preaching to the converted. So we sort of did it the other way, which is just to go, look at me, aren't I great? Isn't money great? Everything else is rubbish. Only money is good.
2: My name is Malcolm Gladwell. You're listening to Revisionist History, where every week I revisit the forgotten and the misunderstood. In this week's episode, the final episode of our first season, I want to talk about satire, political satire. We live in the golden age of satire. It's almost to the point where we seem to conduct as much of our political conversation through humor as through the normal media. Remember Stephen Colbert at the 2006 White House Correspondence Dinner? In character, as the conservative talk show host he was playing on television, he stands up and he gives a satirical toast to his quote-unquote hero, President George W. Bush. I stand by this man. I stand by this man because he
4: stands for things. Not only for things, he stands on things. Things like aircraft carriers and rubble and recently flooded city squares. And that sends a strong message that no matter what happens to America, she will always rebound with the most powerfully staged photo
2: ops in the world. All the while, President Bush sits unhappily on the dais a few feet from Colbert, squirming and grimacing and looking like he'd rather be 100 feet underground. It was a moment of comic genius. Then there was Tina Fey's devastating impression of Sarah Palin during the 2008 campaign, when the Alaskan governor ran on the Republican presidential ticket with John McCain.
5: Well, Alaska and Russia are only separated by a narrow maritime border. You've got Alaska here, and this right here is water, and then that's up there is Russia. So we keep an eye on them.
2: Who do you remember now? Sarah Palin herself or Tina Fey's Palin? I've written opinion pieces for newspapers or magazines, and there you have to write in somber, reasonable tones. You're limited. Satire allows you to say almost anything. That's where truth is spoken to power in our society. When you sugarcoat a bitter truth with humor, it makes the medicine go down. Your audience lets its guard down. Just look at the way Saturday Night Live has covered Hillary Clinton. They've ruthlessly zeroed in on her her ambition Her humorlessness, her severity, her opportunism. All the things that have always given people pause about her. You're finally going
5: to announce that you're running for president. Oh my gosh, I don't know if I have it in me. I'm scared. I'm kidding. Let's do this.
6: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Hillary, you put the hill in hilarious.
2: (laughs) Comedians have become our truth tellers. And that's what loads loads of money was trying to do. Enfield wanted to tell the truth about what was happening in England after Margaret Thatcher came to power in 1979. She was the British Ronald Reagan. During her 11-year reign, she took on English socialism with a vengeance, called it a nanny state. Her aggression angered and scared a lot of people who felt that something fundamental about the country's character was being upended, that something dark and crude had been unearthed, something like loads of money.
3: All he did was have money, shag birds, drink, go to the opera. That was it, kind of thing.
2: Wait, he, I didn't realise he went to the opera.
3: Well, he, he didn't really like the opera, but he liked it because it was expensive. So he liked to be seen there, you know. So he'd go up to the bar and flash his wood, <laughs> you know, and order champagne top, which is basically like, lager top is a very big drink over here which is lager with a bit of lime in the top it's something you might get your girlfriend in the pub so he'd go to the opera and order you know a pint of champagne top to keep it going keep his girlfriend going
2: loads of money ran in the mid 1980s on a popular friday night sketch comedy show on british television it struck a nerve the first couple of times you do this sketch is there is the reaction immediate or is it kind of builds
3: No, it's absolutely immediate. I mean, it was a sort of live show, and so it needed sort of big, brash, loud characters, and this was one. And people absolutely got it straight away.
2: It's hard to find someone over the age of 30 in England who doesn't remember the Loads of Money theme song. Enfield released it as a lark in 1988, and it was huge, rose to number two in the British pop charts. The video is a series of shots of Loads of Money marching around with scantily dressed women Driving fancy cars and sneering at the rest of the world, all the while waving huge piles of pound notes. It has 3.3 million views on YouTube. There is no op-ed, no letter to the editor, no impassioned essay that gets 3.3 million views on YouTube. That's the power of satire. It can go places that serious discourse cannot. But here's the strange thing. If you ask Harry Enfield about loads of money's legacy, about what he thinks he accomplished by speaking truth so boldly to power, you know what he says? He says it made no difference. And that's what I want to talk about. Let's call it The loads-of-money problem.
3: You know, I mean, it's great fun to do, but generally, you know, it's just about questioning what's there because we're allowed to question what's there, so we do. But it doesn't ever change anyone's
2: mind. When Harry Enfield told me he didn't think loads of money made any difference, the first person I thought about was Stephen Colbert. Not the straight Stephen Colbert of the current late show, but his breakout character, the parody of a right-wing journalist that Colbert played on Comedy Central, first on The Daily Show, and then from 2005 to 2014 on The Colbert Report. Colbert was trying to do a version of what loads of money was doing, shine a light on something crude in American popular culture. But you know, I was a guest on The Colbert Show a few times when I was promoting my books, and I have to say that there was always something a bit, maybe ambiguous is the right word, about Colbert's satire. You go to the studios, they're in Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan, far west side. You sit in the green room beforehand, and Colbert comes in to say hello. He's not in character. He's this warm, charming, nice guy, and I can't stress the nice part enough. Everyone who meets Stephen Colbert thinks he's nice. He chats with you, and he warns you that when you go on set, he's going to be someone else. But you don't quite believe him, because you see this really nice guy in front of you. Then you get on stage, and he really is someone else. He's now this aggressive, right-wing talk show host.
4: Okay, I'll get straight to my problem with this. Okay, yeah. you know I got a problem with this, right? I'm sure, you do. That did. can't yes. come as a surprise to you. Yeah. Okay. The New Yorker. Okay, you think pieces. That's you're right. You write think pieces. Why do you want to make me think about my dog? <laughs> I feel about my dog, and my dog loves me back unconditionally. Why ruin that with thinking about it?
2: Now, you know intellectually, by the way, that was me on the Show. Now, you know intellect, because I had a book called What the Dog Saw. You know intellectually that that's satire. He's doing a parody of a brain-dead talk show host. But it doesn't feel like a parody when you're sitting there. He's jabbing his finger and raising his one acrobatic eyebrow, and there I am like a deer in the headlights of satire, blinking. It's terrifying. I think I went on three times, and every time I swore I'd never go on that show again. You say our dogs. Do you have a dog? I, I, don't, have a dog. I don't have a dog. I don't have a dog. Okay. I, um, my building doesn't allow dogs. I, I'm an aspirational dog owner, but I... I really? Yeah, I, someday... So had
4: you the ability, you would own a dog? I would
2: Someday I hope to own a dog, yeah. I, uh-huh. I grew up with dogs, and I've... Were you, you raised know, by wolves? What do you I, mean? I, you were, I, well, I <laughs> grew up with dogs. That's what I mean by ambiguous. Am I in on the joke, or am I the butt of the joke? I, I have no idea. The Courbet Report has actually been studied by a communications scholar named Heather Lamar, who's an assistant professor at Temple University in Philadelphia. She's part of a group of social scientists who have made a specialty out of studying how humor operates in popular culture. And she was drawn to the Colbert Report for the very reason that I'm talking about. That gap between what you, as the audience, know intellectually that he's trying to do and the way his performance feels.
6: I have a lot of liberal friends, especially in you know academia, but I also have a lot of friends and family members that are conservative and i started noticing that they would talk about the show as if it was equally funny but in completely opposite ways
2: it struck her as something worth examining in more detail
6: why are my republican friends and family members watching him every single night and finding him hilarious but they see him making fun of liberals and my liberal friends love him to death and just biggest fans ever and think it's hilarious that he's making fun of people like rush limbaugh and bill o'reilly
2: as an example, Lamar picks a clip of an interview Colbert did with the left-wing journalist Amy Goodman. This is from 2009. Thank you so much for coming to the show.
5: It's good to be with you, Steven. Now, think.
4: Uh, you're a communist, right? You're super liberal lefty. They don't get any more liberal, lefty, like uh, outside agitator than you, do they?
5: I don't know. I think that conservative and liberal lines are breaking down right
4: Mm -hmm. now. Yeah, to right and wrong. Um,
5: (laughs) Let me talk about the red estate. I'm not going to let you do
4: anything. You're going to have to earn every inch of this interview, young lady. You don't come into my house and get me to let you do anything.
2: During that outburst, Goodman nervously swivels back and forth in her chair. She starts to smile, but only gets halfway. So there's a kind of grimace left on her face. She raises her arm and points it at Colbert. But then just as quickly she takes it down. I know exactly how she feels.
4: <laughs> I heard you were a firebrand. Well, bring it, baby. I was, I was just in
2: Now, what does Lamar find when she studies audience reactions to a clip like that? She finds that the more liberal you are, the more you see Stephen Colbert as a liberal skewing conservatives. But the more conservative you are, the more you see Stephen Colbert as a conservative skewing liberals.
6: So essentially they saw what they wanted to see. So the big takeaway here of this study was that this is what we would call motivated cognition
2: or biased perception. Colbert says to Goodman, you're a communist. That's funny if you think the joke is on Colbert. It's also funny if you think that Goodman actually is a kind of communist and someone is finally calling her out on it.
6: Yeah, and he's sticking it to a communist. And we ask those kinds of questions in several different ways. And every single time the conservatives, and especially the strong conservatives, would say, yeah, it's a joke, but he really kind of means it. So he really does sort of think she's a communist, and he really does sort of think there is a right and a wrong, and I agree with that. Whereas the liberal would be like, oh yeah, he's clearly making fun of Bill O'Reilly.
2: There's no difference in how funny conservatives and liberals find
6: Right. Colbert. And that's part of the magic, right? So that's why I would say he
2: was a comedic genius. Lamar loves Colbert, and she thinks that what he accomplished with the Colbert Report was extraordinary. He created a character who managed to appeal to all sides of the political spectrum simultaneously. Do you know how hard that is? Really, really hard. But if you think that he's somehow winning an ideological battle, you're wrong. Boy, the way Glenn Miller plays
6: Songs that made the hit parade
3: Guys like us, we had it made Those were the days And you knew where you were then Girls were girls and men were men
2: Still screeching going on. (laughs) This isn't the first time this has happened with politically motivated comedy, by the way. Almost 50 years ago, when Norman Lear's All in the Family was the most popular show on American television, There was a huge debate over the show's star character, the bigoted, reactionary Archie Bunker.
3: Isn't anybody else interested in upholding standards? Our world is coming, crumbling down.
2: The coons are coming. (laughs) Bunker was created to satirize conservative attitudes on race and sexuality, but in the end, the consensus among social scientists seemed to be that he didn't do that at all. Here's the conclusion of the best-known study on the show. We found that many persons did not see the program as a satire on bigotry. All such findings seem to suggest that the program is more likely reinforcing prejudice and racism than combating it. It didn't change any minds. And the same thing happens with loads of money. At one point, Enfield does a benefit for British nurses who are all on strike. Nurses in the UK are public sector employees and they want a modest raise. And Thatcher, who's intent on shrinking the size of the public sector, won't give it to them. So at this benefit, Enfield comes on stage as loads of money in his white trainers and his acid wash jeans and nylon shell and screams at all the nurses, get back to work, you scum. Then he burns a 10 pound note on stage and the room of nurses goes wild. They love it. He's perfectly captured what they're up against. But the other side, The side they're up against, they love it too.
3: And it got sort of taken on by The Sun, which was a very right-wing paper, and the kind of left-wing papers. Basically, everyone took it on. Everyone decided it was theirs. You know, they made him their property.
2: So The Sun looked on loads of money quite affectionately.
3: Yeah, yeah, they thought it was great, and it was a sign of Thatcher's Britain that all working-class people were getting richer. That's what they... That was the propaganda that was how they interpreted it i guess yeah which obviously wasn't really the case but it was quite funny
2: (laughs) were you taken by surprise by the reception that loads of money got
3: i was why well just because you know i'd done other characters and they'd been all right but this seemed to go very big and it got sort of mentioned in parliament and then Mrs. Thatcher suddenly said, we've got a loads of money economy or something. And then the leader of the opposition said, you know, you've created this loads of money. They, and they were both using it. One of them was using it with pride and the other one with, you know, contempt. And it was, it was odd, very odd. I, I didn't expect it at all, Malcolm.
2: It really is odd. There are cultural histories written of the Thatcher years and invariably they talk about loads of money and how the character was this great symbol of the era. And it's clear that enthusiasm for this grotesque mockery was even greater on the right than it was on the left. Finally, Enfield just kind of gives up. Tell me how you killed him off.
3: Oh, I think he got, well, I think I just stopped doing him and then we were doing comic relief over here. And I think we did a sketch where he got run over. He was run over by a van on live telly for charity.
2: (laughs) The loads of money problem happens because satire is complicated. It's not like straightforward speech that's easy to decode. It requires interpretation. That's what draws you in. That's where the humor lies. But that act of interpretation has a cost. Heather Lamar calls this the paradox of satire.
6: So the trade-off with satire becomes all of the thinking, or a lot of the thinking, becomes devoted to what the comic means, who the target of the joke is. And as they interpret that, then they spend less time thinking about whether that warrants any kind of real consideration or counter-arguing sort of the merits of that message.
2: This doesn't happen when you listen to straightforward discussion of politics. There you just think about the arguments, but satire's different.
6: Here you're spending all of your time thinking about the nature of the comedy, which leaves very little mental resources available to think about whether the comedy has truth.
2: There's a brilliant essay written on this very subject in the July 2013 London Review of Books. It's called Sinking, Giggling into the Sea, and it's by the writer Jonathan Coe. You should read it. Coe takes the argument against satire one step further. He says the effectiveness of satire is not just undermined by its complicated nature, by its ambiguity. Coe says it's undermined by something else, the laughter it creates.
0: Laughter in a way... It's a kind of last resort. If, if, you, if you're up against a problem which is completely intractable, if you're up against a situation for which there is no human solution and never will be, then okay, let's, let's laugh about it.
2: In, say, the humour of Laurel and Hardy, Coe says that kind of laughing is perfectly appropriate.
0: Because when you see them taking on some ridiculous Sisyphean task, like pushing a piano up an endless flight of stairs, failing time and time again, you have Oliver Hardy collapsed on the floor with the debris of the accident around him, looking resignedly to camera. Then, you know, what, what they're asking you to laugh at there is, is the human condition and the, and the, the intractability of the, of the forces of nature and the forces of physics, which we can do nothing about. So, of course, we have to laugh. With political problems, it's slightly different. I mean, some, some political problems are intractable, but some political problems can be solved. And perhaps, instead of laughing about them, we should try and do something about them.
5: And I just hope that tonight the lamestream media won't twist my words by repeating them verbatim.
2: (laughs) Back at the beginning, I mentioned Tina Fey's brilliant impersonation of Sarah Palin on Saturday Night Live. I love those sketches. I think Tina Fey is a comic genius. But after listening to Heather Lamar and Jonathan Coe, I can't help but think that her comic genius is actually a problem. Saturday Night Live bought Tina Fey in to skewer Palin out of a sense of outrage that someone this unqualified was running for higher office. In 2008, lots of people felt this way. Palin was the running mate of John McCain, an elderly senator of uncertain health. She could easily have been president. Saturday Night Live was trying to hold Sarah Palin to some kind of scrutiny, to say, this is who she is. But looking back now, I don't think it worked. Because Tina Fey is too busy being funny.
6: Well, here we go. This is going to be very nice. Our first guest is a terrifically uh, funny and talented woman. uh, And uh, her television series, 30 Rock, begins its third season
2: on October 30th. Uh, Please welcome the lovely Tina Fey, ladies and gentlemen. In October 2008, just before the election, Tina Fey does an interview with the talk show host, David Letterman. Now, you would think, with the vote looming... Faye and Letterman would want to talk about the subject of her satire or the intention of her satire. The fact that someone this unqualified might be less than a month away from the vice presidency. But they don't. They talk entirely about the mechanics of Faye's satire.
5: She's got that crazy accent. It's a little bit Fargo, it's mm-hmm. a little bit uh, Reese Witherspoon in election. And it, it also, um, I tried to base it on my friend Paula's grandma. Because uh, her grandma was this sweet, sweet old lady from Joliet, Illinois, and she would always say, like, oh, this and that, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it <everybody> would, um... <laughs> If you call up looking for Paula, she'd be like, "Oh no, Paula's sleeping." No, I can't wake her. She's sleeping, and I think that's might be our next vice president. <laughs> oh no!
7: But it's it's it
6: sounded to me a little, and I don't know what the connection would be. It sounds a little like Upper Midwest, kind of Great Lakes region.
5: Yeah, she's dropping the G's, you know, and she also I asked um uh, Seth myers this is the guy who really writes all those sketches we've been doing, and so I said, like, "Can you put a lot of R's in there?" Because she gets. Her R's are, she really loves the, you know, like, these terrorists and William Ayers and, and, uh, she, she digs in those R's. I think she thinks there's oil in those R's. She is digging deep.
2: They want the laugh, so they make fun of the way Sarah Palin talks, and the way she talks is not the problem.
5: There's certainly been a strange reaction to it, and then I've seen people who say, oh, no, you're helping them, you're helping Uh them, because people... It's people. It right. seems makes her seem nice, or you know, or the. It's or some the Republicans Wait. say it's sexist.
7: Sexist? How could it be sexist? There was some
5: lady from the McCain campaign that. Uh, not so. There's some lady. I'm still talking. About. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was some lady who tried to say you know it's, it was sexist. The one with the teenage <laughs> sex. That's you know just crazy because you you have to be able to goof on the female politicians right. just as much. Otherwise you really are treating them like they're like they're weaker or something. And this Sarah Palin is a tough. Ladies, she kills things, big, she kills animals, that are bigger than me and you together.
2: Did you catch that? Because you have to be able to goof on female politicians, goof, like the role of the satirist is to sit on the front porch and crack wise. Why doesn't Tina Fey just come out and admit that her satire is completely toothless? And then what happens? The very next day, The day after Tina Fey goes on Letterman, Sarah Palin appears as a guest on Saturday Night Live, right beside Tina Fey.
6: Thank you. Now, I'm not going to take any of your questions, but I do want to take this opportunity to say, live from New York, it's Saturday night!
2: They let Sarah Palin in on the joke. And Palin and Tina Fey dress up in identical outfits, red outfits with little things in their hair and put on identical glasses because that's even funnier. And what you're left with, what are you left with? You're left with one of the most charming and winning and hilarious comics of her generation, letting her charisma wash over her ostensible target, disarming us, disarming Sarah Palin
5: and now I'd like to entertain everybody with some fancy pageant walking.
4: I really wish uh, that that had been you.
5: Yeah, Lauren, you know, I just didn't think it was a realistic depiction of the way my press conferences would have gone.
4: Yes, but it's obviously a heightened reality.
1: Why couldn't we have done the 30 Rock sketch that I wrote?
2: Honestly, not enough people know that show. Sure we all laughed at that at that, that sketch, but it's kind of heartbreaking, isn't it? At least Harry Enfield was trying to take a bite out of the establishment with loads of money. Saturday Night Live has taken out its dentures and is sipping the political situation through a straw. Lord help us if there's some other even less qualified and more frightening political figure out there.
0: I think the, the pleasure that laughter generates can be deceptive. To, to make an audience laugh is very, it's a very solid, a very tangible thing. I think it's, it's only after the event, maybe years after the event, that you pull back and ask yourself, well, was that the effect that I wanted?
2: That's the writer Jonathan Coe again. He brings up Peter Cook, the legendary English comedian of the 1960s. Cook was the driving force behind Beyond the Fringe, the British satirical review that's really the spiritual ancestor of shows like Saturday Night Live.
0: Of course they're not
7: English, (laughs) they're American. What I mean is they're not English, they're not of English stock. I mean, you only have to look at the names, Lifkovitz,
4: Ribovitz, Vaseline, those aren't English names. They used to be. No, they never were. I mean, they used to be very good English stock,
7: though Anglo-Saxons. Puritan.
2: Exactly, as was the Statue of
7: Liberty.
2: Cook later started a comedy club in Soho in London called The Establishment. Peter Cook, kind
0: of his genius and also his curse was that he... He, he saw all these contradictions as soon as he started really. And he was, he was under no illusions that he was gonna change the world through satire. And uh, yes, the, the parallel he used with the establishment was that he was, he was modeling it all on all those wonderful uh, Berlin cabarets from the 1920s, which had done so much to prevent the rise of Hitler and the, uh, and the beginnings of Nazism.
2: Yeah. We're gonna s- stop there and talk a little bit about the dilemma of political satire, and then I'll finish up with the conclusion. You, so, do you buy it, Virginia?
1: <laughs> Are you sold? Um, I think political satire doesn't work on the left, and it works very well on the right. its it c- I think it's a conser- fundamentally conservative form, and I think the way all your satirists used it is, a, is conservative, and I'll tell you what I mean. Um, the satire unlike other forms of humor, works well against a backdrop of absolute consensus about values. So it's anti pretension it's anti-aspiration, it's anti-ambition. So capitalism is the perfect thing to satirize, but in that way, Margaret Thatcher, and this is in the loads of money satire, in that way, Margaret Thatcher was very progressive. She wanted to move England out of its old ways and promote class mobility. And the satire ended up being this quite sneering attack on the vulgar pretensions of, a, of, a, of an auto mechanic who, who has the audacity to get rich, right? Mm-hmm. And so that is exactly the way satire's always worked. You love it when I get academic and I open myself up to satire. But the, you know satire is an 18th century form. It's Pope and Dryden saying, look at these like foolish English people with their pretensions. We know the truth and we can get right down to it and another academic article about that came to mind is about uh all in the family archie bunker paul damon this french critic called him the arch debunker archie De- Bunker existed not to satirize the right or the left but to get to the truth to debunk all these truths when stephen colbert asks you why do you want me to think about a dog i just want to feel something for my dog that's not a right or left position that's true enough you know a lot of us who write think pieces get told sometimes we're overthinking and sometimes worry we are and there's nothing in that attack that is anything but let's get down to brass tacks here you're a pointy headed new yorker think piece person let's get real and it works that way it works to get real i'll tell you one last thing yeah When I I grew up in in Hanover, New Hampshire, Dartmouth Colleges, Stephen Colbert's character went to Dartmouth College, notoriously conservative college with a a, a satire sheet that was very attractive and interesting to me when I was in high school. In the middle of the green were sitting people in the late 80s um, protesting investment in South Africa with these shanties that they had organized. I thought that was very romantic. They slept outside in shanty towns in deference to the political situation in South Africa. They were complaining the college was invested in, they wanted them out. The Dartmouth Review, this right-wing journal, managed to find all their pretensions, how they brought moisturizer to the place or how they, you know, needed, I'm trying to think of like 80s totems, but how one of them also, you know, took time out to go hear Madonna in concert or whatever. And it was the typical satire of political correctness. These were rich kids doing this thing. So one night, they tore down the shanties and sold the, firewood t- sold the wood as firewood to the poor. G- sorry, gave it to the poor. Mm-hmm. So in other words, like we have real values, and you're all pretension.
2: Yeah. And
1: at the time, I thought, why is the left so unfunny? The left has none of this room. I mean, we don't see it now. But, and then there are all these ways that you could do a right-wing satire of, of Donald Trump. Sometimes Twitch does this, the the video game site, like they'll say things about Melania Trump that Saturday Night Live won't say. They'll just be like mail order, mail order, mail order in their video thing when she comes up. Because that's the kind of like, I'm gonna speak truth to this thing. But the left can't do that. The left can't just suddenly go for you know, like these bald, I'm gonna speak the truth about these people because that's not the style of the left. So anyway, tell me if you think, I mean, if you can give me an example of the way that it hasn't worked for the right. And I think Stephen Colbert is fundamentally conservative.
2: Well, I would say, uh, well, there are many things to respond to that. Um, uh, I guess what I'm objecting to is people who adopt the satirical pose and then sell out. Yep. So, uh, Saturday Night Live, a lot of things you're discussing are the, sat- the kind of satire that happens on the fringes of the culture, yep. and I agree that it can be very effective. But our mainstream organs of satire, it strikes me, are toothless. Like I said, Saturday Night Live's a joke. You would think, at this cultural moment, Saturday Night Live would be leading the charge, mm-hmm. and they don't. They invite the the object of their scrutiny on the show, and they. Yep. I mean, it, and it's that lack of. Um, uh, it's their desire to be liked, which is essentially why you tell a joke: you want to be liked. Trump's their desire to tell the truth. And that's what I'm objecting to. They're, they're trying to defend their place in culture and not perform their role as satirists. They're, so they, have, uh, they are conservative in the sense that they are way too worried about their own status and not worried enough about. Yeah. Um, and that, I find that kind of cowardice um, to be, maybe it's too strong a word, but it's sort of appalling
1: you know, maybe I think we might be saying the same thing because I think that, like, the sat- the satire of Sarah Palin is classist and sexist and absurd. Like, you know, just because she says this and that, like, all our grandmothers have filler. You know, Tina Fey hates grammatical mistakes and it just, and acts regional accents. Like, yeah. it, you know, I'm not sure that that qualifies as an attack on her that as a little, possible higher
2: office holder. And that little... uh the little clip she does with Letterman when she's talking about the R's and they're trying to place the accent,
8: mm.
2: that you can just imagine that completely backfiring. Yes. That is fodder for people to like Sarah Palin because she's being kind of um, uh, made fun of in this sort of sneering... Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it, it fails as... It, it, it's, its intent is to try and show us the truth about this woman, but by choosing the completely wrong strategy... It fails as, um, uh, anyway, I think the last part of my show is an attempt to, to describe a case where I think satire actually works. And I think it, it, it resolves both of our, oh, good. our questions. Okay, so I'm gonna finish up. Then we'll take questions from you guys. There's a television show in Israel called A Wonderful Country. Eretz Nedaret, someone here knows Hebrew. Nedaret, that's it. It's been on the air since 2003. It's satire, very political. The show's writers belong to the beleaguered Israeli political left. They want a separate state for Palestinians. They want an end to the endless wars. They worry about the increasing religious conservative influence on the country's politics. They're ideologically motivated in their humor in the same way that Harry Enfield and Tina Fey were. But there's a difference. It's more
8: political and it's a, a little more rugged and hardcore, because life in Israel is, is much more rugged and hardcore.
2: That's Muli Segev, the show's executive producer. A Wonderful Country airs Friday night at 9, after the news. Practically the whole country watches it. The stomach of
8: Israeli viewers is, is much more adjustable. You know, they can adjust to much tougher material. Uh, firstly, because the news broadcast that is on the air before us, uh, shows so many gruesome stuff and horrible things that uh, naturally the comedy after that will be the same.
2: A wonderful country goes further than the kind of TV satire that we have in the US or the UK. Maybe because the stakes are so much higher in Israel. Maybe in a country with a tortured history, suffering under constant threat, the boundaries that satire needs to push up against are more real.
8: And we have very, very bad reactions sometimes.
2: Can you give me an example of a sketch that brought about a bad reaction?
8: Let's say like a couple of years ago after uh, the war on Lebanon, we made a sketch that was a parody on a, on a game show called a One vs. 100. You know that, uh, that show?
2: One vs. 100 was a quiz show where one supposedly brilliant contestant known as The One squares off against a hundred people sitting in little cubicles in the audience. The one in the audience are asked a question, and whenever someone in the audience gets it wrong, they're eliminated. The light in their cubicle goes off, and we can't see them anymore. In a Wonderful Country's version, the one was the Prime Minister at the time, and the audience was made up of 119 people. 119 was the number of Israeli soldiers who died in the 2006 Lebanon War.
8: He was asked, why did you go to that war? Why did you do that? Why did you, th- did you do that? And all the, the answers he gave was, were wrong, naturally.
2: It was the 1 versus the 119. And with every wrong answer from the Prime Minister, the light went off underneath one of the soldiers in the audience. They vanished from sight. A uh, soldier
8: went dead on the, on the board. And they, they, were, they were physically there, okay? So the light went off on their spot and that was very graphic and very hard to watch but it, was, but it was important for us to say so that this war was unnecessary at the time.
2: Can you imagine Saturday Night Live doing that sketch during the Iraq war? Of course not. I think we've forgotten what real satire is in the West. That's real satire. It uses a comic pretense to land a massive blow. The first of a wonderful country sketch I ever saw was from five years ago. It was done right at the time when liberal Israelis began to despair about the direction of their government under Benjamin Netanyahu. The sketch I saw is styled in the the manner of a government-funded documentary, a kind of promotional video for a new educational initiative in the schools. It's set in a classroom full of adorable kindergarten students, seriously adorable. A warm and very compelling teacher is at the front of the room.
8: The teacher says,
2: Today kids, we will talk about peace. Who can tell me what we need to have peace? Then the kids start to to mouth every cliche that the Israeli right wing uses to justify not negotiating with the Palestinians imposing a two-state solution, or ignoring world opinion and continuing to build settlements in the occupied territories. A truly cute girl with curly hair says, What peace? Who will we make peace with? There's not even anyone to talk to on the other side. The teacher replies, That's right Lolly, there's no one to talk to. Another adorable girl says, I used to be a lefty but then I got disillusioned. The teacher asks, So why is the world angry at us? A little boy says, our problem is PR. And then he repeats it. The teacher turns to the camera. We don't want them to grow up ignorant. We teach them geography from a young age. She points to Israel on a globe. Here is our tiny little Israel in the Middle East. Who knows what we call the whole rest of the world? And the children chant in unison, anti-Semitic. It's hard to explain a comedy sketch if I can't show it to you, though you can go and see this on revisionisthistory.com. And it's doubly difficult when it's comedy from another country. But believe me when I say the comedy bit is hilarious. I laughed out loud. The
8: current Israeli state of mind when there is no chance for peace. You can't rely on any agreement with the Arabs because they'll break it. The criticism from the world is anti-semitism and not legitimate criticism. We try to put it in this situation where kids in in kindergarten are learning it, and you see how bleak it is, how sad it is to raise a generation with no hope. And that's exactly the ideology of Netanyahu. Things are only going to get worse. All the world is against us. We're alone in the world. We have to build a fortress around us and pray for God to save us. It's not in our hand. We, there's nothing we can do. And that's it for the rest of your life, kids.
2: I said I laughed out loud the first time I saw that sketch, but the second time I saw it, I didn't laugh at all.
8: That's what we're aiming for in a lot of our sketches. It appears to be funny, and then it sinks in, and you think about it once more, and then you s- maybe something will touch you, and you feel the pain that, you know, driven us to, to, to write that. The fundamental truth, when you think about it, is kind of sad.
2: Can someone read this sketch the wrong way, like Stephen Colbert got read the wrong way? Could some viewers think the sketch satirizes left-wing Israeli thinking? Maybe. But I think the intentions are pretty plain. They're not hard to decode. We have children mouthing the absurd dead-end arguments of adults. And if laughter is normally the great distractor, the laughter dissipates awfully quickly here. Satire works best when the the satirist has the courage not just to go for the joke. (laughs) The teacher says, do you want to play? Nobody gets to preach to us about morality. The kids shout out, yes, yes. The teacher pulls out a tambourine and starts chanting, the Italians, one little girl chants back, they collaborated with the Nazis in the Holocaust. The teacher chants, the French. A child replies, Vichy regime. Teacher, the Turks massacred the Armenians. Teacher, Norwegians, and the kids say, killed all the salmon. Teacher, so what do we tell the world? Kids in unison, don't preach to us about morals. The kids are waving their fists in the air at this point, shouting in unison. There's courage in that sketch, unlike Saturday Night Live on Sarah Palin, which is comedy done with no courage at all. If there's a lesson to the ten episodes of this first season of Revisionist History, it's this, that nothing of consequence gets accomplished without courage. You can't educate the poor without making difficult choices, without giving up some portion of your own privilege. You can't be a great basketball player without without being willing to look stupid. You can't even drive a car properly unless you're willing to acknowledge that you sometimes make mistakes. Stupid, involuntary, dumb mistakes. The path to a better world is hard. Is that depressing? I don't think so. I think what's depressing is when we ignore everything history is trying to tell us.
4: Hi, first, uh, love the podcast, it's great. Uh, my question's about the, the three sort of question, uh, episodes on education. So my question is, what concerns you the most about how education functions in the U.S., from pre-K to grad school, just what worries you about the trajectory the country's on?
2: Yeah, um, wow, uh, that's, a long, that's a long answer. Uh, well, if you listen to those three episodes, you know that I'm not particularly happy with any portion of the American educational system. Mostly, it's the misallocation of resources. I don't understand why, if you total up the, the combined endowments of the eight Ivy League schools and Stanford is $140 billion. They collectively uh, educate 11,000 low-income students. $140 billion for 11,000 low-income students. If you think that is a reasonable ratio, then I can't help you. I think that's obscene. Um, and I, and you can't solve any of the problems around higher education in this country unless you liberate that money and put it to use. Right now it's sitting in the coffers of hedge funds generating tax-free interest for those institutions so they can plant tulips in the flower bed. I mean, I, I just don't understand why people aren't jumping up and down and saying this is wrong. Um, I mean, I and then I could go from there, but I mean, I would start with the fact that there is a gross uh, inequity in the way dollars are distributed in the system. How, when you were
8: producing this, how was this different from writing when you were expressing yourself? The way you think about things, the way you want to articulate it, what was your biggest
2: challenge and revelation? Well, I get to rant <laughs> in a podcast, in the way you don't in writing, um, I'm being slightly facetious, you couldn't, it's, there's just, it's such a natural vehicle for emotion um, that it, you can tell a story in a very different way. Um, and uh, you it's, I mean, I suppose there's more, I sort of get why radio is the way radio is, why there's so much ex- emotional extremity in radio, because it's just so easy to to get up, to, to communicate um, strong feelings. And, you know, some of the Many of the topics that I chose were topics about which I have strong feelings, and um, that, I wouldn't say that's true necessarily of my writing. I, I often write about things that I have, to which I have a much kind of more ambivalent relationship. Um, so you're getting angry, Malcolm now.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> what would make you think that you know a Fortune 50 for-profit corporation that stands behind Saturday Night Live would ever? take somewhat of an edgy, deep, thoughtful, uh, satirical attack. And, you know, I think about maybe spitting image that was done by a government owned uh, broadcaster might want to do that, but I just can't think of anything outside of maybe the Richard Pryor show where any major network ever really took a deep biting satirical line. No,
2: you're absolutely right, which is why we should all cheer the, demise of the networks. Um, It's crazy to have a system where everything is being channeled through three large institutions that have only whose interest is primarily their own bank account. You're never gonna get courageous voices. So God bless the internet age where we can have a thousand different voices and people can feel, have the freedom to speak their mind. Um, Because as far as I'm concerned, institutions like Saturday Night Live are have abandoned um, or never, maybe they never even had any real pretensions to truth-telling.
4: Uh, thank you, Malcolm. My name is Jeremiah. I go to one of the Ivy League institutions. And what we find is that um, exactly right, the problem of misallocation. So I wanted to ask you a question about um, how do you capitalize on that talent once you get there? Because um, your, your audience, you speak to the people who are writing the checks. Um, they're the alumni who want to give back, but they don't know how to do it. And the best case scenario is that Pablo from Pablo doesn't remember is able to go to a school. Then when Pablo goes to the school, he finds out that all of the money that a hundred million dollars from alumni gave, he doesn't see any of it. So I wanted to ask you, what is your recommendation for the person who really feels and they really want to care about the issues, but they don't really know what the next step to do is?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, I'm, I, the, the intent of some of those shows was to encourage a kind of thoughtful philanthropy, um, that you should ask yourself the question, where, my dollar, where can my philanthropic dollars go furthest? And also I would say that um, I think that we should spend a lot more time, a lot less time at, the, uh, at this end of the educational spectrum and a lot more time at this end of the educational spectrum. We should be broadening the base um, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be um uh perfecting the tip I mean, we have we have sharpened the end of the pencil yeah. so many times in this country and to such i mean it it is just about perfect and at the same time the other end is uh relatively speaking neglected um uh so I would like you know i would i would just i would just say we have to kind of reorient ourselves to what we um i mean this is if I might back up, there's something very particularly American about this. If you're not American, the most striking thing about American life is how extraordinarily elitist it is. And I don't mean elitist in the se- in the typical sense of that word. I mean that Americans are, are really, really, really interested in the 95th percentile. They're in love with it. You talk to people about hospitals, and they will say, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the? Sloan Kettering is the greatest cancer hospital in America. Well. Okay, maybe that's true, but Sloan-Kettering only treats, can only treat .005% of the cancer patients in America. Why are you obsessing about Sloan-Kettering when 99.95% of Americans can go nowhere near it? Why aren't you concerned about the cancer center that's in the middle of Iowa, right? It's very, in a place like Canada, the argument's completely different. Canadians, perhaps to a fault, obsess about the hospital in the middle of nowhere, right? We're Canadians are all about the 55th percentile. Um, but there's this weird infatuation with this country where the, the, all the ink goes to the very, very best. I'll give you a small illustration of this, since this is Olympic season. When I was a kid, Greg Joy, an obscure Canadian high jumper, won the silver medal at the Olympics. And it, you would have thought that Jesus had come back for the second coming. We were so, we just couldn't imagine a better outcome. Like, and in America, if you win a silver medal, people think that you failed. And they say, what, you know, what happened? Did you, never occurred to us. We just thought, good Lord, a silver medal, right? Only beaten by one guy. This is, this is like, and I I, I kind of wish that this country was more interested in even people who made the final, right? As opposed to this endless worship of the very, very, very tip.
6: What was the thought behind calling it revisionist history um, and well, do you it, feel like it's an accurate title?
2: Well, I'll I'll give you a, a short a short uh, a um, as I like to do a discursive answer to that question, um, and I'll once again invoke my Canadianess. If you are from a small uh, beleaguered country to the north of a large bully, <laughs> you're used to the notion that history is. Written by the victors is old hat to you. Like every Canadian knows this. You know, we, the history I heard, I was taught in school about the War of Independence is completely different from the history you were taught, right? You guys are taught something that, as far as I'm concerned, bears no relationship to what actually happened. You know, you, I mean, I, can't, I won't even start to enumerate the lies that you learned. Why did you, why you taught lies about what happened in 1776? Because you won, right? We lost, and so what do we have? We have only the truth on our side at this point. Um, So I am, you know, any Canadian or, it's funny, the other, my mom is Jamaican, an even lesser, more insignificant country that loses all the time. so, like, we're, I'm sort of used to this notion that history's wrong all the time. And you have to, the only way you're ever going to get back at the truth is if you're willing to go back and overturn a lot of assumptions and beliefs about what people think actually occurred. Um, and if you, if you won, you have no, you have no um, uh, motivation to do that, right? Why would, why does anyone who's an American? have any motivation to go back and re-examine what actually happened in 1776? You don't, right? Why do you have any motivation to go back and to discover, as we were taught in school, that America was freeloading on the British taxpayer? People like my ancestors were paying for you guys, right? And you you chose to kind of twist the truth because you could, because you wrote the history books afterwards. So like, that's a slightly, I'm making fun of you, but, that happens so often that I, I just think a good uh, position to take is that we always get it wrong the first time, and you have an obligation as a thinking moral person to go back and put all of your beliefs to the test. And so this show is one tiny, 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 tiny part of what I hope will be an on, what ought to be an ongoing lifelong progress pro- process for all of us. Um,
6: Um, Hi. Um, First of all, my name's Mia, and I want to thank you so much for coming out um, and sharing your work. I think it's absolutely amazing. I'm a little starstruck. Um, But so my question is that um, you touch a lot about it. um, Things that are basically fact versus feelings. And um, I think, for instance, in The Blame Game, which is one of your most recent episodes, you talk about how much, so much about the Toyota crash wasn't the reality, but yet what people were feeling was actually becoming what was the effect. What you think is the most important thing to think about, whether it be really the facts behind these issues or the feelings and the emotions that the country and the world has, because sometimes that's really what actually is the the defining matter um, behind that. so yeah just your opinion on that. Thank you so much. Thank you.
2: Um well I guess the the question of feelings is in, uh, is a uh, is guides how you communicate with people. So what happened the com- the Toyota thing is really interesting. So Toyota botched I didn't go into this in the podcast but Toyota completely botches how they handle sudden acceleration. Because what happens is People start to report that their Corollas are mysteriously accelerating, or their Camrys are. And Toyota hears about this, and they send their engineers from Japan to come over, and they're engineers. And when they go, and they actually send them to talk to the people who are involved in these incidents. and the engineers look at the car, examine it, determine that there's nothing wrong, and say to the person, as an engineer would, you are sadly mistaken, in fact, possibly delusional, your car... Is absolutely perfect. You screwed up. And how do they respond to that? Well, with here they are, terrified, shaken up. They think they almost died. They heard about some story in the news about how a guy had a horrible crash and killed his entire family. And here they have an engineer say, "There's nothing wrong with your car. You screwed up. You know, I can't believe you call us." What happens to them? They they won't accept the truth. They they double down. They denounce Toyota. They say that there's some massive conspiracy. They imagine this whole thing about software. They make it up out of whole cloth. What Toyota took them over a year to understand was that just because people are emotional and wrong doesn't mean you have to push their feelings aside and um, look down on them and sneer at them. They're not automobile engineers. They don't know how a car works. And as you say, the feeling that they have is it feels true. They really did think their foot was on the brake, right? But it was on the accelerator. So you that ought to have been a guide to how you communicate with them. And Toyota finally figures this out and and becomes all touchy-feely. And the problem goes away, right? I mean, not, um, and that I think is a, if you're concerned, say, about a certain political candidate in 2016, the the way you ought to speak to that candidate's supporters is not to sneer at them, and to roll your eyes, and to say you're an idiot, it is to understand where their particular kind of outrage or anger or comes from, and um, tailor your communication to them accordingly. Um, so that's how I would, I guess, I would say we ought to take emotion into account. One last episode. One last question.
7: Hi, that's uh, a great. Uh, I have listened to all your. Uh, podcast is great. A couple of uh, questions, one to piggyback on the young lady. Uh, is there, with the Toyota debacle, was there a rep, uh, reporting bias there? Uh, because there weren't, you know, similar instances with GM and others. And I was just curious whether, you know, there was any answer from the automobile industry. Mm-hmm. And the second question is to do with uh, uh, the Stanford versus Rowan uh, University, where you really did uh, great with uh, President Hennessy. And I'm just curious whether he was open enough to acknowledge that uh, they are in the business of uh, return of investment, ROI. Uh, you went through a labor procedure of uh, making us understand that out of $800 million, uh, you know they get 100 kids and it's around $140,000 uh, a year, but it seems it's deeply discounted. Uh, you know They are investing in the p- uh, students that they think would give them you know, their investment back and more, like Google and others. Mm-hmm. Whereas Rowan is not looking that way, it's uh, looking as a community. And they're not looking at the students who graduate bringing back the same kind of ROI at a personal level, at a, at a, at a university level. And I just want to know your thoughts and whether you, know, you had an opportunity to, uh, to ask that question.
2: Yeah, well I, uh, to you. answer the second question first, um, those of you who've listened to that episode where I interview the president of Stanford, I remain deeply uh, baffled by his point of view. So to summarize it as best I can, he basically was saying, well, we need to start an $800 million scholarship fund at Stanford to bring in 100 students a year because we think that by bringing in very, very bright students and supporting them with lots and lots of money, we can change the world. To which I would say, I thought Stanford was doing that already. So is John Hennessy essentially saying that the job Stanford has done over the last 100 years in bringing in very bright students and supporting them with lots and lots of money hasn't worked, so now we have to start a second Stanford? I mean, it's a very curious position to take if you're the president of an elite institution, to say at the end of your tenure, I'm gonna start another elite institution to do essentially what I was supposed to have been doing all along, right? So there's a kind of implicit, I I mean, I I would love to sort of put him on the couch with a skilled Freudian, and have him walk through the thought process behind this kind of implicit acknowledgement that it's not working, right? Um, The other thing I was amazed at is, is the, the kind of, the extraordinary self-confidence of these people who think that they can, they really can select, that if you look hard enough for people who have really high test scores and throw enough money at them, they will save the world. I'm still waiting for evidence that the world is saved on a routine basis by people with lots of money and high test scores, and I, I can't find that evidence. <laughs> to my mind, the world seems to be well, equal parts imperiled and saved by people with high test scores and lots of money. Um, So I'm sort of, I'm more attracted to the Rowan model, which goes back to what I was saying earlier. Rowan University is a school that's trying to broaden the base that says maybe we've tapped out our search for kids with really high test scores from really great high schools. Maybe we ought to extend our search to people from non-traditional places. Um, And that strikes me as a, Place a uh, strategy that will yield a much higher return on investment. Um, so that would be my. Um, I, no part of my conversation with John Hennessy in retrospect made any sense at all. And <laughs> I have never had a conversation with someone who the world regards um, so highly that was so completely disappointing. Um, as to GM, uh, as to the automobile industry yeah every automobile manufacturer in the world uh, in America that is to say has sudden acceleration complaints but they keep them quiet and the whole time Toyota was being victimized everybody else was just praying that no one publicized the cases that they, the phony cases that they get levied against them But anyway thank you all for coming enjoy the show
1: this was great, thanks a lot